The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Martin Luther is not the only father within the church or a person within the church who has been profoundly and deeply impacted by the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church. there created and established after Pentecost in Rome. And it's those words of Luther that we are coming to this text and to this new series that it is truly the opening of the doors to paradise. That it is that glimmer and that peak within the gospel of Jesus Christ through Paul's letter that has truly impacted the church throughout all of its generations. I hope that many of you took opportunity this week. Uh, Andrew Shank, who is our pastor of discipleship, each week writes uh, a small, uh, as you would, encouragement through the website on, and it's linked within the e-news that goes out, just a word on worship to prepare you. And in it, uh, this week, he spoke and wrote and was impacted by John Stott's book on Romans, which is there available for you in the Resource Center. Um, again, let me make mention of the Resource Center. This isn't a profit center for us. It's actually a loss for us because we, we want to provide for you in the church resources uh, that you may not uh, have readily available to you. And so I'd encourage you, we have copies of John Stott's work out there and others on Romans uh, for you to take. And in it, you'll see pictures of this book of men and women throughout the ages Uh, John Chrysostom, who was one of the early Latin fathers of the church coming uh, from northern Africa in the Roman Catholic Church, came into a deep and profound experience with the grace of Jesus Christ uh, through the book of Romans. And he had one of his students every week read the book of Romans to him twice. Every single week of his life, he had the book of Romans read to him twice as he said, it is the most profound insight into the love of God through Jesus Christ. And I want to hear it and to hear it and to meditate upon it and to feed upon it every single week. I thought about that for myself. Me, like many of you, struggle mainly even day to day to have 15 minutes of a time in God's word. To take time and set aside. If you try to read Romans with its 22 pages and 7,100 words in that letter, it's somewhere around three hours. And so Chrysostom recognized that he could take six hours out of his week just to hear this word spoken over him. John Wesley was changed forever, and the movement, even the movement down in Savannah, was impacted because of the reading of Romans. You heard the words of Martin Luther and others. And so we approach this text, and as one writer put it, many have a history with this. And he wrote, this is one writer, Samuel Coldridge, said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. John Knox, not the Scottish pastor, but another John Knox, said that it is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. And another said, century after century, has been the flame at which one great, this letter has been the flame at which one great Christian leader after another has kindled his own torch to the revival of the church and to the enrichment of Christendom. So, pretty good words. 
I approach this, one of my heroes in the faith, contemporary heroes in the faith, is John Piper, a former uh, pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And he said he was terrified to ever preach on this. It took him 18 years uh, before he and the pulpit ministry approached Romans and began to preach and to teach through it. And as we come to it, I guess I approach it a little differently. I have the same reverence for it and the impact for it, but I don't want you to be scared of it. Most people go, oh, I can't get to Romans. That's so deeply theological. Uh, that's, so, uh, that's so complex that it's too intimidating for me. Well, folks, let me let you in on something. It's one of 66 inspired books of God given to us and at equal value of every other word given to us in the Scriptures and that the Spirit of God which teaches us through Judges, which taught us through Exodus, is the same Spirit of God which is going to teach us through Romans. And interestingly enough, Paul wrote this book to a new church, a fledgling church, a young church, to new believers. And so I know it's oftentimes uh, the tradition of the church that if you have a new believer, you take them to John or you take them to Galatians. Paul would have said, I've written a letter for you. And it's this letter which was penned to the Roman church, but which was spread out all around into Asia Minor and in, even into Europe uh, as the gospel and the church grew. And so this is where we're going to come to this week. And this morning is simply going to be an introduction to that, to pick up on some themes and some thoughts. D.A. Carson, a great commentator and biblical scholar in our day, said that Romans is a letter that is inextricably about God, that behind every word, behind every passage, behind everything is God the Father standing right there, that there is no way to pull back from it, there is no way to apply it to anyone else, that it is God and the sovereignty of God in our lives, the providence of God in our lives, God's hand at work within the lives of Christians and the lives of everyone who comes close to him. It is all about God. Paul is saying in this, it's not about me. And in the passage that we heard this morning, oh, and by the way, um, we're going to be looking at this book over the course of this next year together. We will spend about 34 weeks uh, on it. We'll be 17 this fall, taking a break for Advent, and then a couple of things at the turn of the calendar year and then in getting back into it and moving uh, through into the spring. And for some of you, you're thinking, good grief, Bill, 34 weeks on one book? Are you kidding? I was looking at one pastor. He preached nine sermons on chapter one. John Piper preached three on verse one. There was a great Donald Gray Barnhouse who was the wonderful pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church uh, in Philadelphia for many years, preached for five years. Uh, through Romans and the evening sermons. And by the way, if you ever want a treasure trove of depth and wealth, go and find Donald Gray Barnhouse's sermons uh, put together for you uh, in a multi-volume series or uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of just being alone and I would listen to these men and to hear them preach. Ah, oh, beauty of God's Word. Many of you are readers. I encourage you to buy good resources and have on your shelves to read and to be blessed. Don't just listen to me uh, on this series over the next year. 
but I pray that you will listen and read and hear from many others. But now we come this morning, and we're going to look simply at two verses out of this first uh, 17. We're going to look at verse 5, and we're going to look at verse 7. And we're going to highlight, uh, as Matt mentioned, we're going to highlight this idea, this truth about God's grace to us through the gospel. Verse 5 says, Through whom, that is Christ, who was born a descendant of David, raised uh, by power uh, as the Son of God. Now it's through whom, through him, that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to ask several questions this morning, very simple questions. We're going to ask what, we're going to ask where, we're going to ask how, and we're going to ask why. What, where, how, and why. And as I said, this is simply uh, an introduction, a a primer, if you would, uh, to get some concepts, especially this idea and truth of grace into your mind. So first, what? What is grace? Grace is a word that is used over 155 times in the New Testament. Paul himself uh, used it 100 plus times in his letters. And in the book of Romans, I used 24 of those instances in this book. It was a word that Paul was trying to say is important. It is important for us to understand grace. That grace is the forgiveness of our sins through the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That we now have peace with God, are called to be His daughters and His sons. That we have the righteousness of God implanted within us and are heirs of the kingdom of God. Grace has been defined, and you've heard it as simply said, it's unmerited favor. That it is the freeness of God's justification of sinners. For some of you, maybe in your childhood or in your early uh, years of being discipled and growing as a Christian, heard that grace was a simple acronym, that it is God's riches at Christ's expense. One way to remember the word grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, that it is nothing that we have merited. Grace means free. Grace means unmerited. And the reason that I, I plow that forward at first cause, that we want to talk about that first, the reason that Paul so importantly, uh, so highlighted it is so important uh, in the Scriptures. So think about how that word uh, is used. Grace. Maybe graceful. A dancer or a skater uh, or an artist is graceful. That you, before the meal today, after uh, the this, this sermon and after you go home, you're going to do what before you eat? You're going to say grace. And we, we see grace and we misunderstand it. We don't really understand fully what it means, but it is that unmerited favor of God given to us. It was the, the key component of the very beginning of the protesting church, of the Protestant Reformation that began with Martin Luther and even others before him, 
Savonarola and Zwingli and others with him who talked and they said, we always thought we had to earn it. Martin Luther said that he was an impeccable monk, that he was perfect, as it were, in his righteousness. Luther would spend days without eating and would beat, literally beat his flesh into submission. And he said, I was an impeccable monk, but I hated God. I hated God, for I could never earn his favor well enough until he came and by God's Spirit he read Romans and he realized it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. That he recognized that it is the grace of God which takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and implants it. Luther called it the alien or foreign righteousness of God. It is foreign to us. It's alien. It's outside of us. And it is given to us unmerited. It's so important to understand. I've joked around about my economics professor in freshman economics 101. You walked in and Dr. Arnold in his shirt sleeve, shirt, white, his gray or khaki pants. And he would stand in front in the first day of class, would say every year for the 25 years of his tenure there at Presbyterian College, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as free lunch. He said it is the basis of our economy that is the basis of life. And the quicker you come to understand that, the more successful you will be in life. So there's no such thing as free lunch. And we take that and we apply it into our, script, in our spiritual lives, into our Christian lives. And many of you, many of you, if not all of you, wrestle at some level with the fact that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it has nothing to do with you. You recognize that, right? That you're actually the problem in the equation, You are the variable that had to be dealt with. And Christ is that which comes and says, it's all by me. So, what is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Where? Where does this grace come from? Where is it originating from? Paul says there, to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from... God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace comes from, it originates out of the very heart of God the Father. He is the source of it. It comes from Him. It wasn't something outside of Him, but is generated from within His very being of who He is. That God is the single most important character in this entire letter. And the single most important person that you could ever get to know. And that grace comes out and through and by Him. For it is said, it is out of the Father's love that He raised Christ from the dead. It was the Father who sent His Son into the world. Uh, That the very genesis uh, of the gospel message, the very genesis of our salvation, is from the very heart and loving heart of God. Some of you relate to Luther actually before his conversion. You have impeccable righteousness. Your reputations are intact. You have high moral 
values. Uh, you obey the rules. You are a wonderful rule follower. And deep down within you, you will never give utterance to it. You're not as bold as Luther, but deep down underneath it, you hate God. Because it's never good enough. You ever been around someone like that? Where you do everything that you possibly can do to earn the grade, to earn the raise, to earn uh, the promotion, to earn the affection, to earn whatever it is that you're earning. And then at the end of the day, they say, oh, there's one thing more. There's always something more. The proverbial carrot moves constantly away. And for many of you, you feel that same way about God. If you do, camp out in Romans. Stare at it. Read it. Listen to it. Let it wash over you and recognize that it is from the very grace, or the very heart of God that this grace abounds to us. And he says it's also from the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ, it says in verse 4, who was born the son of David, who was raised the son of God in power. There is no grace apart from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to find the grace of God, the salvation of God, outside of that. That is the exclusive claim of Christianity. That is the hook that comes in that says you can find and experience grace nowhere else. You will never gain that unmerited favor anywhere else except from God's love to us through Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. God wanted to express grace to us. He wanted to show grace to His chosen people, His remnant throughout all the years. How was He going to do that? He looked at His Son and He said to Christ, you go do it on their behalf. You go live on their behalf. You go suffer the consequences of their failings on their behalf. You drink the cup of wrath on their behalf. And then you raise from the dead. You come alive from the dead. The power of the grave no longer has any control over you. And you now will be raised on their behalf. For the picture is this. Christ obtained grace for you. When it says that He looked out from the cross and saw the joy set before Him. The joy set before Christ was the beauty of the grace of the Gospel given to those who could never on their own gain it, that we could never on our own get it. John Piper wrote these words. So grace is a reality that comes from God and comes through Jesus and is his work for us. It is not something we have a right to. Jesus obtained it for us. We get it freely because of the obedience and the death of another. I hate those words. You know why I don't like those words? Because I was raised uh, in a culture that if somebody gave something to you or did something to you, you're indebted to them. That you had to then respond in kind. That you had to maybe even underneath the surface one-up it. And so if somebody did something kind and caring for our family, I would often hear uh, in the background, now we have to do something. Now we have to have them over. Now we have to give a gift back to them. We're indebted to them. And I've grown up suspicious 
of the intentions of everyone. That when something good is done, I always think there's strings attached. And so when you hear of this unmerited favor given to us by God, your first response is, okay, what's the string? What's the catch? Reality is there's no catch. No catch that is given freely. Not based upon what you do, not based upon anything else, but just upon the merit of God. And it rails against our ego and our pride. So what, what is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God given to us at Christ's wonderful expense. Where does this grace come from? It is generated from nowhere else except the very heart of God the Father. That it comes to us through Jesus Christ that He obtained this grace for us. So how do we receive it? How do we get it? If it's there and it's available, how do we then take it and bring it uh, to us, ourselves? How do we apply it to our lives? How do we receive this grace? Faith alone. Very simply, faith alone. Not earned by works. If you were to flip over to Romans 11, chapter, verse 6, Paul wrote, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That we receive it by faith in what we read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That it is not by works. That it is by faith alone. When Martin Luther began the reformation of the church in 1517, what began to spring out of that were certain things called solas, individual things, highlights. Solo Christo, Christ alone. Solo gratia, grace alone. Solo fide, faith alone. Solo scriptura, the scriptures alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That what Luther understood was what Paul had received from God was that we gain this grace, you gain this grace through faith. By simply believing. You see, Paul says uh, that he was set apart for the gospel and for the ministry of the gospel in Galatians 1.15. He said he was set apart before he was born. Before he was born. Uh, that means that grace could not be based on his efforts or as a response to his good works. Romans 4.4 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Therefore, grace is always received through faith, not earned by works. You can only receive grace as a gift and acknowledge that it comes to you freely and you can't work to earn it. If it, that is election, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace would not be grace if you earned it or received it by your works. We receive it simply by believing, simply by welcoming it as a gift and relying upon it. The interesting thing in the letter to the Ephesians and the words that we heard read earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that it is a gift of God. Do you know what the it is? Faith. 
Even the faith that we have to believe is a gift of God given to us, as Paul said, even before he was born. That he was set apart for these things even before he was born. That it was God's work in his life as a generous gift. Some of you come and many people have the misunderstanding and the incorrect view that our salvation is based upon the foreknowledge of God. And by that they mean that God looks into the future and sees your righteousness and then calls and elects you to be his son or his daughter. God looks into the future, sees your good works, therefore determines that you should then be called and elected as his son or daughter. It's an interesting way to manipulate the word, but basically what it says is at the end of the day it's still based on you. And that you receive these things not by faith or grace, but by your good works. But Paul is saying that I was called before I was even born. You realize that. Those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, that it was before you were a twinkle in your parents' eyes, before you were a thought in human history, before even the foundation of time and the world itself, it says that God set his love upon you. And how we receive that? You believe it. You believe it. How do you exercise faith? You exercise it. I know that sounds silly. So how do you believe these things? Well, you believe these things. You keep going back to the Word, and you sit, and you read it, and you go, I'm having a hard time believing this. And you read it some more then. And you sit quietly with the Lord, and you say, Lord, I want to believe these things to be true. Would you make them real to me? Would you move whatever obstacles are in place? Would you remove even my doubts? Would you remove uh, my objections? And would you work through them and let me see? And would I believe these things to be true? And then as you see them to be true, you begin to act out on that faith of saying, I'm going to today. From this moment on, at least right now, I'm going to act as if these things are true, as if I do believe them, and I'm going to step out in faith, believing that it is true, that I am forgiven. And when another thought comes into my head, I'm going to arrest that thought, and I'm going to take it captive, as Paul said. Take every thought captive to the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, it's not by my words. It's not by anything, but I'm going to believe by faith in these things. So what is grace? Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense on our behalf. Where does it come from? It comes from His glorious heart, from God the Father and Christ the Son. How do we receive it? We receive it by faith, not by works. And then why? What are the effects of grace in our lives? Why do we receive this grace? Paul understood it, and beginning in verse 1, he wrote this, Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul's own testimony is that he is, delu- is not deluded, but that he understood that Jesus bought and owned him, that he was purchased with a price, a high price, that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, Paul said that he is the bondservant of Christ because Christ bought him and Christ 
owns him. That's the problem with faith and grace. That we don't have any more bargaining chips. That if you're in a relationship where you, put some, you had some skin in the game and somebody asked you to do something, you could say, hey, I didn't bargain for that. I didn't bargain for that. I only put this much in. I only have this much liability. I only have this much uh, you know, expectation on. But if it's all by grace... If we were purchased by Christ, exclusively by Christ, exclusively for Christ, by his purchase price of his very life, then it says that we are his bondservant, that we are in that position to him. It means that we begin to live according to Christ's rule in our lives. Galatians 1 says this, 1.10, Am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Jesus. In other words, being a bondservant of Christ means utter submission to what pleases him, not what pleases anybody else. One commentator wrote these words, so Paul's self-understanding is that he is bought and owned and ruled by Jesus Christ, a man who was killed as a criminal perhaps 25 years before his letter was written and who Paul will say in verse 4, was raised from the dead and is absolutely unique son of God in power. In other words, here in this history-making letter, we are not dealing with a man and his genius. We are dealing with a man and his owner and ruler and God. This begins to explain why this letter is no ordinary letter. Why did God give us this grace? It was to bring us into a deep and a profound relationship with him. And that profound relationship with him would be one where we are a bondservant to Christ. Living for him and by him and through him and to him. And we are called, he says in there, that I have been given grace and apostleship. That you're called to a ministry. The grace that Paul is beginning to explain in verse 7, and I don't have time to fully unpack it, was that grace isn't simply your forgiveness of sins. We usually keep it on that side of the equation. But God says that he also gives us grace to complete the ministries that we've been called to complete. Paul's ministry was that of apostleship. None of us are called to apostleship. We, none of us meet the biblical requirements uh, of apostleship. But what are we called to? What Paul said here in this letter, to all those who are called as saints, to all those who are called to be saints. Paul's calling was to be an apostle. That's not ours, but what is your calling? Rewrite verse 5 this way. Paul wrote it, I have received grace and apostleship. What's yours? I have received grace and motherhood. I have received grace and fatherhood. I have received grace and studentship. I have received grace and a singership or worship leader or businessman or a coach or spouse or grandparent. There is a calling that you have in your life and that you have received grace and the power of God in order to complete the ministry that God has given to you. And two things are the problem with most people. One, they don't even know that they have a ministry. 
Many of you don't even recognize that God has given you a ministry. And even if you do recognize it, you don't realize that you have been empowered by the very grace of God in order to accomplish that ministry. There is not a single role in life that can be lived the way God wants it to be lived apart from His enabling grace. John Piper. There is not a single role in life that can be lived the way God wants it to be lived apart from His enabling grace. How many of you are in relationship with another person? That would be all of you. Do you know what is going to enable you to be in that relationship in a way that honors the Lord? The grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Husbands and wives, if you're in that relationship, boyfriend and girlfriend, whatever it is, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How do you do that? Wives, honor and respect your husbands as unto the Lord. How do you do that? Children, respect your parents. Parents, don't make your children crazy. Don't drive them nuts. It says don't spur them on to wrong things. Respect authority. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? Every relationship that you've ever been in has deeply wounded you at some level. How do you forgive the person who doesn't deserve your forgiveness? You look back to the cross. You look back and you go, I have been given a grace and a power by Jesus Christ that he forgave me. How then can I withhold forgiveness from somebody else? You go back. It is the enabling power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The grace that we have received that leads us that in every single role that is lived. So here's a little bit of an assignment for you today. Identify your ministry. And then go back and reread verse 5 and plug it in. I, Bill McCutcheon, have received grace and pastorship. I've received the grace of God in order to accomplish the goals and the tasks that I've been given of fatherhood, of husbandry, of friend. And then finally, we'll end here. What's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal, it says in the scriptures, is for the sake of the Lord's name. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to verse 5. That you would receive these things in the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. That we live these things out in our daily lives so that God gets the glory. That we point to him and we point to his gracious gift. And this morning as we come now to his table, let us recognize that it is truly a gift of the Lord. As we come, we come expressing our need of this grace, that we are fallible, that we have fallen. And so I invite you with me this morning now as we approach to confess with me together our sin and our need of the table. It's printed for you in your bulletin and on the screen. Pray with me. Almighty, and merciful God, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep.
We have followed too much the devices and the desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And have done those things which we ought not to have done. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those according to your promises declared to the world in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful God, for his sake, that we may live a holy, just, to the glory of thy holy name. Father, we do come, and would you hear our confessions as we prepare to receive this means of grace, the body and the blood of Christ himself, this meal.